Michael Montenegro is a puppeteer who turns his flights of imagination into tangible forms and figures. After building his puppets, often in life-size form with a ragtag collage of materials, he becomes them, lives inside them, then delivers them to us with a zany vigor. This is the Craftsmanship Quarterly Podcast, a show about artisans, makers, and innovators who are creating a world built to last. I'm producer Chris Igusa. Today, we'll hear a piece titled The Puppeteer, originally published in 2015, written by Lori Rotenberg. If you've seen Michael Montenegro on stage, you would never suspect that he's a shy man. He is, after all, considered one of the more innovative artists in the world of puppetry, a somewhat fringe and underground group of performers carrying on a tradition dating back more than 3,000 years. What sets him apart from the rest, says director Michael Summers of Open Eye Theater in Minneapolis, is his remarkable style of engineering and construction. It's unique, and I've never seen anything quite like it. In Montenegro's hands, even the act of construction is an exercise in deception. His puppets seem thrown together in a rush with a random mishmash of material. Underneath the chaos, however, lies a careful purpose. As his friend and fellow puppet artist Blair Thomas puts it, Montenegro makes this stuff that looks like a pile of junk until you pick it up and it comes to life. A tangle of wires and cutlery can become a face, the finger hole and a pair of scissors forming an eye. Old paint rags become the puppet's skin or the palm of a hand. Montenegro says he chooses his materials to execute an idea quickly. Their design is about subtlety and suggestiveness. Exaggeration and proportion are often what make a puppet interesting. Realism is not my goal. Expressionism is. Even his performance style leans to the symbolic. Many people think all they have to do is wiggle a puppet, Montenegro says. Too much movement in a puppet is like uh, too much human chatter. It becomes a turnoff and people stop listening. Consider, he suggests, how a head floats on a shoulder. If it is held high, it can show arrogance, he says. If it hangs down, it may portray sadness or a lack of self-confidence. If it is tilted to one side, it appears as though the person is trying to dodge something. Materials resonate, he says. They have a soul. As if to illustrate his point, Montenegro glances at one of his life-size puppets, which he has named the Floating Monk. Yes, that's my jacket on him, and I'm starting to become jealous that he has it, he says. Well, maybe I'll take it back. Theatrical Primitivism Montenegro, an astoundingly young-looking 63, not only builds his pieces, he also writes the short-form plays that he performs through Theater Zarco, a traveling operation he runs from his home in Evanston, Illinois. He says the work serves as a buffer to a technological world. I create puppets, he says, to say something that can only be said by using these strange figures. We have lost a connection with this primitive, atavistic world, and I think to our great disadvantage. 
While that might sound depressing, it isn't to Montenegro. If the grid goes down, there's always puppet theater, he says. His work is often compared to Samuel Beckett's tragic comic, dotted with gallows humor, his scripts ranging from poetry to political mockery. The more serious productions can be eerie, almost an extremist. One is a piece that Montenegro calls a duet, which takes place in semi-darkness. The first character the audience sees is a large, almost rectangular head sitting on a pedestal, donning a fedora. Its skin is made of paint rags mottled with stains, the ears simple twists of faded floral fabric. To form a sardonic mouth, the rags were cut on a slant, folded, and punctuated with black fishing line. Montenegro is hiding underneath, inside the second character, a man in a patchwork jacket who emerges later in a ghostly white mask. As Montenegro tugs invisibly on the fishing lines, the puppet's lips part, exposing a ghastly row of teeth fashioned from rusty nails. The puppet even has bad breath. Whenever it opens its mouth, it emits a faint wisp of turpentine. Bring plenty of socks, Giacco, and a warm sweater, the puppet says. I am all there is behind the veil, beneath the facade. I am all there is. But do not fear, Montenegro can also be flat out hilarious. In Meet Baby Gigi, Montenegro plays a cantankerous infant trying to kick a bad thumb-sucking habit. His body hidden beneath a large box, Montenegro's head emerges, poking out above a puffed-up little body clad in pajamas. As he pouts around on stage, he manipulates two tiny waving arms using sticks that he controls from inside the box. Such a wild range might seem at odds with Montenegro's shy character, until one considers the nature of his art form. What could be a more perfect home for an introvert than a world of masks? The Creation of a Puppet Montenegro works out of his Evanston, Illinois garage, a beautiful shamble of rusted gears, twigs of wire, strands of black fishing line, strips of old cloth, and rows of books and trunks. Complete heads with bizarre expressions sit on various boxes and shelves. Here and there lie hands of clay and carved wood, 
On one table, there's a small dog puppet fashioned with strips of an old undershirt. Suspended from frames lining the walls are impossibly intricate maquettes, small prototypes of puppets still in gestation, which are woven from unlikely debris, an orange peel, screws, forks, roots, a few stones. I asked him whether the idea of the puppet and its design arrive first, or if the story creates the puppet. As he answers my questions, his eyes close and stay that way for nearly 10 minutes. He says the spark that will become a puppet comes from minutia, bits of an overheard conversation or an elegant movement. Construction begins with a lightweight wire armature of links, hooks, and coils, to which he applies strips of butcher paper dipped in a mix of flour and water seasoned with salt to prevent nibbling by mice. Montenegro is also a painter and a sculptor. When he builds a puppet's features from cloth or paper, applied wet through paper mache, the angles, indents, and coloring may look haphazard, but each one is formed with precision, according to how stage lights will fall on the puppet's face. And at this point, I begin to form the features. I can place them anywhere on the face. I, I'm not interested necessarily in doing a realistic portrait of anyone. So I have fun with the kind of expressionistic opportunities uh, available to me in making a mask. So I can move the features up and down and sideways and create different expressions at this stage, experimenting before... Anything Dialogue takes shape up. as the puppet is created, he says, but it's not a language as we commonly think of it. Montenegro pieces are sometimes as sparse as haiku. If you use the human pedestrian language with puppets thoughtlessly, a disconnect is created, he says. Language via puppets needs to be distilled and distorted. A puppet lives or dies by simplification, distortion, exaggeration, and expressiveness. Once the papier-mâché dries, Montenegro starts bringing life to his newborn faces. For a rose in hue, he adds earthen clay powder. It's a lot like frosting a cake, he says. Sometimes, if he's aiming for a more refined complexion, he smooths a face with a fine sandpaper— Teeth are carved out of wood. By the time he's done, they seem like figures from another world. They are a bit like a mummy, he says, almost like the bog people discovered in Ireland. Montenegro seems to have tuned up his senses to such a degree that almost anything can inspire him, even the smell of his masks. One smells like cherry wood, he says, and it transports me when I wear it. It's very soothing. Some smell like my father. He was a painter, and when I inhale, I picture him. I ask if he can see the audience when he's inside his masks. If I make eye contact with someone in the audience, he says, I become absolutely terrified. Montenegro says that he avoids literal meaning and wants his art to be interpreted in different ways. I create a piece of work that comes out of my life and my artistic impulses. And unless I'm really, really literal, 
each person is going to see their own play. If I were to tell them this is about such and such and such and such, then they only half watch because they, they, they watch with their intellect. I would rather tell a story that you can overlay different meanings onto it and that doesn't mean that I'm being evasive so much as I would like to be broader than that. The Birth of Puppeting More than five decades ago, when Montenegro was only six or seven years old, a pirate that his brother had fashioned from a discarded soda bottle topped with a papier-mâché head led to his enchantment with inanimate figures. I saw the pirate and fell in love, and I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life. He was growing up in New Mexico at the time, and he found a book at the local library about marionettes from around the world. His Chilean father was a painter, and his mother a musician, so they had no trouble making his youth a hotbed of creativity. Soon, he recalls, the Montenegro family was staging puppet shows that were, quote, epically long and drove the neighbors nuts. Before immersing himself in puppet theater, Montenegro became a street performer in Maryland, Massachusetts, and California. During college, he studied theater, becoming an actor and mime artist, fueled by the work of Charlie Chaplin and Francis Marcel Marceau. He also took interest in European clowning, another extremely physical performance discipline. From there, his influence became ever more eclectic. The writings of Walt Whitman and Charles Baudelaire, the films of Wim Wenders and Satan Tango, the absurdist avant-garde puppet work of Polish director and performer Tadeusz Kantor, and photographers such as the Brazilian Sebastião Salgado, known for his documentarian work on social issues. He had plenty of tradition to choose from, the first puppet play ever mentioned was in 355 BC by Plato in Chapter 7 of The Republic. Many centuries later, during the Middle Ages, priests and monks spread Christian doctrine by puppeteering with Virgin Mary dolls, thus the word marionette. More recently, Federico Garcia Lorca penned a play in the style of Punch and Judy, the famously crude slapstick puppet team from Britain, Ingmar Bergman and William Kentridge later explored puppetry in both film and theater, as did the modern dramatist Paula Vogel in her 2003 play The Long Christmas Ride Back Home. Puppets have also been the subjects of experimentation by well-known painters, such as Paul Klee, Alexander Calder, and Oskar Schlemme. The Japanese have a particularly long history of performing theater with shadow puppets, made with figures animated behind a lighted screen. Bunraku and its lover's suicide themes, which were founded in Osaka, later became so popular in Kyoto that a puppet theater located across the street from a kabuki theater was packed every night. In order to draw even larger crowds, kabuki actors adopted the staccato movements of their competitors, the puppets. According to records of the Greek philosophers Xenophon and Plutarch, from 422 BC, Puppets served as useful devices for political criticism, illustrating how oligarchies and armies were not acting under their own will. Numerous other forms of clay and ivory puppet figures have been unearthed in such places as China, Mesopotamia, the Middle East, India, and Egypt, sometimes alongside mechanical toys called automata. 
Sicily, once a hub of epic marionette productions, still maintains Le Opera de Pupi, the Opera of the Puppets. Sicilian puppetry has long been central to the region's institution of Sicilian folk art, with roots dating back to the 15th century. The tradition involves large, bronze-armored marionettes staging historic, violent battles, sword fights and jousts against the Normans, the Saracens, and dragons. Some are heroes drawn from the Crusades. Italian puppets can be a couple of feet tall and are usually controlled by hefty metal rods, which exhaust the puppeteers. Hilarious, energetic shows can regularly be found in cities like Palermo. And after a performance, it's not uncommon to see the puppeteer emerge for a bow, panting and drenched in sweat. (laughs) But somebody has to be the boss, and I am the puppeteer, and he is just the puppet. (laughs) (laughs) We said we would have no no puppet. A puppet renaissance? If he could, Montenegro would take puppetry out of the theater and onto the cityscape, bringing it to the masses. He imagines performances on a Chicago beach at dusk, the lake its backdrop, believing that the time for puppet theater has arrived. In the past 30 years, there have been signs that puppetry has come out from the underground, fueled by Jim Henson's Muppets and Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont. Traditional theater companies are starting to integrate puppets into their work. Earlier this year, Chicago hosted its inaugural Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, in which puppet artists from around the world meet and perform. In some communities, Even puppet weddings are becoming the rage. Montenegro is now working with his friend, Blair Thomas, who is the founder of the Chicago Puppet Festival, to create a 90-minute production of Moby Dick. Montenegro will create the protagonist, Ishmael, a role Thomas specifically had in mind for his friend. Construction of the puppets will take place in Thomas's Wisconsin barn, and the show will premiere at Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Art. Michael is a quiet, unassuming guy with a deep understanding of the world, Thomas says. In much the same way, he adds, Ishmael is able to see into the really dark vision of Ahab and see the beauty and the horror of the ocean at the same time. The Puppeteer was written by Lori Rotenberg. It was read by Garen Norquist and produced by me, Chris Igusa. Our managing editor is Lori Weed. Todd Oppenheimer is the founding editor and executive director. This story was originally published in the summer 2015 issue of the online magazine Craftsmanship Quarterly. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming releases, including stories, interviews, and audio projects featuring some of the world's most skilled artisans and innovators. The best way to support what we're doing is to share our work with others and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship 
can be found at craftsmanship.net. 